you open your Bibles to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 9. Let's bow in prayer. Father, again, we thank you, Lord, for your word and for preserving your word for us. Father, we ask, as always, that you would bless our time in your word, that it would be profitable. For, Lord, you would teach us, you would instruct us, you would continue to change our hearts, our minds. That, Father, you would continue to conform us to the image of your Son, Christ. That, Father, we would be motivated and strengthened to live the life that you've called us to live. And so, Father, we thank you for, again, your word and for the time that we have to study in Christ's name. Amen. As I mentioned last week, we're kind of uh, taking a small little break from the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, I want to deal with really, even though we're going to be dealing with, with some prophecy, my main uh, concern is the application of it in our day-to-day living because we can easily get caught up in all the things that are going on in our world and we can begin to forget uh, what the scriptures say about the future and what that means for us as believers. I don't know if you heard about this, but this happened yesterday at 8 o'clock in the morning. Uh, a lot of individuals in Hawaii got a text from the emergency system which said that a missile had been launched uh, towards them. It was coming towards Hawaii and they needed to take shelter immediately. And it was followed by these five words. This is not a drill. They closed down the airport. Uh, people were heading out trying to find basements. Not a lot of basements in Hawaii. Uh, there was individuals who were calling family uh, in various places, California, Las Vegas, basically to say goodbye. Say they, they loved them, didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, quite uh, an event. Uh, pretty stirring, to say the least. Uh, and then, of course, it began to come out that, uh, that, it, that it was false and that a mistake had been made, that there was a shift change somewhere, and some person had pushed the wrong button is how they described it. Uh, what a button to push. <laughs> but it took a while for word to get out that it really wasn't happening, and you can just imagine the kind of panic. Well... I think what's interesting is, is that when that message was sent out, it was believed. There's been enough things in the news that people thought that that was a very real possibility. They had spoken about it over the past year because of the craziness that's going on over in Korea and all the testing of missiles and whatnot. And so it was believable. I don't know what we would think if we got that kind of text here. I think my first thought was, I don't think so. <laughs> Besides, if I'm within three miles of the radius of the blast, it doesn't really matter what I think. I'm going to be dead. Uh, but the point is, is I just don't think I would believe it. But the thing is, is that in the time we live in, we know that this, this type of thing and the reality of this kind of thing, it, it's going to take place. We understand at least enough about prophecy to know that things aren't going to go real well before the Lord comes. And so we began to look at a few things in Daniel chapter 9 and and I'm not going to get caught up too much in it, but like I said before, a little bit of this is kind of like a Bible study uh, in just trying to understand what is written uh, because there's a great deal in the Bible. I think I read in one place that at least 25% of the Bible uh, is prophecy, uh, so it would be difficult to ignore all of that. But we began to look at the vision that was given to Daniel, the, the, what we call the 70 weeks. Remember the context of that, that Daniel was one of several thousand Jews that had been taken captive to Babylon. While he was there, he was reading Jeremiah's prophecy that this cap- captivity would last around 70 years. 
This prompted Daniel to begin to pray on behalf of Israel, and that during his prayer, the angel Gabriel came and visited uh, him and gave him uh, the 70 weeks prophecy. And the prophecy speaks about the things that concern the Jewish people in Jerusalem. Uh, This prophecy was divided up into uh, 69 weeks, and then the last week, that there's going to be a first event uh, that he could look forward to, in which a decree would be issued that would restore and rebuild uh, Jerusalem, uh, and it would even begin to rebuild the defenses of Jerusalem. And then when all that was done, uh, the arrival of the Messiah uh, would come uh, about 69 weeks or so after all of that uh, took place. We uh, looked at the book of Nehemiah to try to figure out how that prophecy worked out. And we saw from Nehemiah chapter 2 that there was a decree that was given by the king in 444 B.C. It was given according to Daniel's prophecy uh, that Jerusalem would be rebuilt, including its defenses. Uh, And then, of course, we know that there was the appearance of the Messiah. About 476, 480 years later, uh, Jesus arrived on the scene. And, of course, it said uh, in the prophecy that the Messiah would be cut off. Uh, which was a euphemism for being killed, and that he would have nothing. And that was emphasizing all that Jesus gave up uh, as his life ended on the cross, that he willingly postponed all of the glory that was due him on earth for the sake of saving sinners. So looking once again at Daniel 9, beginning in verse 26, again it reads, Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So when you look at verse 26... And he mentions, uh, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with the flood. Uh, Its end refers back to the destruction of the city uh, and the sanctuary, uh, Jerusalem and the second temple. In the phrase where he says it will come with or come like a flood, he describes the destruction of the city and the sanctuary as a sudden and devastating result from a massive invading force. This agrees with the fulfillment of the prophecy which occurred when Jerusalem was sacked by and the second temple was destroyed by Rome in 70 AD. And then in the latter part of verse 26, he says, Even to the end there will be war and desolations are determined. And so the phrase, even to the end there will be war, it does seem to many to extend beyond the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Even though it was destroyed and the temple was burned um, to the ground and, and, and Jerusalem was sacked by Rome, Uh, That's not the end of these things. That's just kind of the beginning of what's going to be happening. When When you have that phrase, which appears in many of the translations, where it just adds, desolations are determined, or desolations are decreed, it seems to be that... uh, uh, that is part of what extends to the end, that, that there's more desolation coming, there's more destruction coming. And so it is unlikely that this refers only to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. In fact, when you begin to look at other things and, and other prophecies, and we'll look at one of them today, um, because there are some who believe that what took place in Jerusalem in 70 AD is what all of this is talking about, all the whole entire prophecy, that all the prophecies uh, concerning 
uh, what, what I might consider the second coming of Christ, were all fulfilled in 70 AD. They weren't. And we'll see one of the most important ones. I think we can see by the wording that it wasn't. But again, there's this understanding. Uh, and when you go back and, and you look at the words of Jesus Christ, he did talk about Jerusalem uh, being sacked. He talked about uh, Jerusalem's incoming. And I believe that was in part uh, due to their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, he said that when you see that the armies come and, and the city surrounded, that you know that its end is near. And when you begin to look at what took place during all that time, um, the, uh, the Roman army came around 68 AD and they surrounded Jerusalem. Uh, I believe this is in relation to when the people were yelling for Jesus to be crucified. They, they said, let his blood be upon us and upon our children. Uh, and so it was. And in 68, 68 AD, Jerusalem was surrounded. Uh, in the early part of 69 AD or the latter part of 68 AD, the siege was broken temporarily. Uh, because the general of the army went back to Rome to become Caesar. Uh, his son took up the siege again of Jerusalem. Uh, in 70 AD, they got tired of waiting, um, and so they marched in on the city. I think it's in Josephus. I have to double-check uh, with my friend, Arnold Futenbaum, but I'm pretty sure that's what he said. But he said in Josephus, it states that when the siege was broken, all of the Christians that were in Jerusalem left because they understood the prophecy that Jesus had given and they left, then the siege was taken up again, and then when Rome marched on Jerusalem and began to slaughter the Jews and burn the temple, uh, and then even chased or grouped them out to Masada, which took about three years to build a ramp, and then there was a, a mass suicide. According to, to Josephus, 1.1 million Jews were slaughtered by the Roman sword, and not one believing Jew was killed by the sword of Rome, and that's because they had escaped, because they believed what Christ has said. Just a lot of interesting things that are going on there. Prophecy is a very common thing in the Bible, and when you see it fulfilled in all of its details, it's really an amazing thing to think about. But this prophecy concerning another coming destruction, and that is when we get to this, this last week that Daniel talks about. And so when you look at verse 27 of Daniel 9, he says this. He says, And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. Uh, the pronoun he should be taken as a reference to the nearest preceding male, which is the, the prince that's going to come. And so I believe, I don't believe he's Jewish. I, I actually believe that he is of Roman descent. Uh, but this individual, when he comes, uh, he is going to make a treaty with uh, the individuals. Um, again, the week, remember uh, that, that we're talking about a seven-year period. Uh, and so there is a specific treaty that is made with Israel for seven years. Uh, it appears that the seven-year period, a firm covenant is made with many, meaning a majority of the Jews living in the land uh, are going to agree with this. Uh, this uh, treaty that's given, basically, there is an agreement that Israel is not going to be bothered or Israel is not going to be invaded. Uh, so this individual who makes this agreement with them has at least the authority to make this kind of promise. Most of the Jews agree with it, and then halfway through, this treaty is going to be broken. Uh, which I believe, again, this period is the tribulation, and then the three and a half, the last three and a half year period is called the great tribulation when this happens. And all of this is future tense. Um, I don't believe that we're going to see it. Uh, there are those who believe that the rapture, which is what we're going to be getting to eventually, is going to take place at the end of the tribulation. I don't believe that. Um, they believe that we're going to see all these things. I believe we may get a hint of some of this, uh, but this is the direction the world is going in. I happen to believe myself that everything 
that is going on the road today is setting itself up to make all of this happen really very easily uh, for this to happen. Back in the 70s, when prophecy was a real big deal, uh, in the sense there were a lot of prophecy conferences all over the country and, and people were talking about a great deal. Um, I, I remember, even though I was in high school back then, I remember that it seemed that a lot of the speakers were, were kind of stumped, having a hard time explaining something. And that is when they were talking about eventually the world is going to be a one-world government. I don't know how long it's going to last, but there's going to be a one-world government. And they were, trying, they were having a hard time explaining how America fit in all that. Because they just couldn't imagine America agreeing and somehow being a part of a one-world government. Certainly, we would be against that, and we would not be a part of that. We don't want anyone else to rule us. We're really stubborn like that. You know, we like our freedom and all the rest. And they just couldn't imagine that happening. Um, and, I, and, 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 of course, the idea of someone being stronger than us militarily to force us into that was really unthinkable. And, and I still today don't think that could happen. But I do think this. I think we'll just kind of go right along with it. Not tomorrow, but uh, soon. It won't really be a big deal. Uh, I think that uh, everything is kind of moving in that direction. And so as a result of all of that, uh, again, my belief is that as believers, even though it may be interesting to see all the things that are going on in the news and in the newspaper and all the things, I don't think that really should be our greatest concern. Our greatest concern, what we should be caught up in, is how we respond to these things. In other words, we know that the end is near. How do we, how do we live? How do we live in light of the truth of what the Word of God has to say? Again, he says in 27 that in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come the one who makes desolate. Uh, so when this, is, uh, when this treaty is broken in the, in the middle of this week or at the three-and-a-half-year mark, it talks about uh, these sacrifices and grain offerings being put to a stop, which means they have to start again. That's led to a lot of speculation. Some of it I don't think is wrong, uh, but a lot of speculation that the, that the uh, temple has to be rebuilt. And when the temple is rebuilt, then all this will begin. That's partially right. Um, Really, you only need part of the temple to be rebuilt. You don't have to have the whole temple rebuilt to, for Israel to begin to uh, start making sacrifices again, which those who are Orthodox Jews, they do want that to happen. There was a rumor for a long time that there's going to be a big war in the Middle East, as if that was a new thing, but that there's going to be a big war in the Middle East because the Dome of the Rock would have to be destroyed for the temple to be rebuilt. Uh, but I, I'm fairly certain about four or five years ago, as they continue to do excavation. And they do a lot of excavation there, not only to uncover what, you know, what has gone on in the past, uh, but the reason why this is difficult when it comes to the temple is because of what Rome did back in 70 AD. Remember that when they burned the temple, uh, because of the way the temple is built, it, it becomes like an oven, and there's a lot of gold in the temple. And so after Rome had finished sacking the city, you know, the Roman soldiers, uh, as part of their pay, so to speak, they're allowed to pillage. And so because of the amount of gold that was in the temple and because of the heat, uh, the gold melted and, and basically seeped into the crevices of the large stones that, that were used to build the temple. And so they tied ropes around these boulders and used animals and people, and they kind of spread, uh, pulled these boulders down so they could scrape the gold out uh, that was there. And so it was just strewn all over the place. And so as a result of all that, it makes excavation and accurate historical records, you know, it can make it difficult to put all those and piece those things together. But in the end, basically, about five years ago, and it might have been ten years ago, I'm not real good on some of those 
shorter spans of time. But they discovered that they don't even have to touch the Dome of the Rock, that they could rebuild the temple without doing that. Uh, and so, you know, this big fear everybody had doesn't really, have, uh, doesn't really have to take place. But again, the point is, is that the sacrifices will begin. At some point, uh, you don't have to have the temple rebuilt uh, completely, just a portion of it, and they're going to begin to do that. And when this guy comes in, uh, when the armies invade, he's going to bring the sacrifices to an end. It's going to, so this is a, it's a major event uh, that takes place, this violation of the covenant. And so again, there's, there's, uh, the, the, as the Bible speaks of these things and the turmoil uh, that is going to come upon the world, we understand that that's going to come. And the Bible, I believe, talks a great deal about us being delivered from all of that, and we will get to that um, uh, in the coming weeks. But I just kind of wanted to, to move through this uh, again, he says here in this verse, he talks about the, this invasion coming on the wing of abomination will come uh, one who makes desolate. Uh, the term on the wing sometimes is translated as overspreading, which is using the King James Version. Uh, but again, what's conveyed, the idea there is that this event is going to be an extreme event uh, that takes place. And it is associated with what, uh, what is called the abomination of desolation. And that is used in several different places. But if you would, turn to Matthew chapter 24. And we'll see that Jesus talk about the abomination of desolation. And we'll just look at it just for a moment real quick. Uh, to kind of just get a real, just a quick idea of what this is and what's going on. Um, beginning in verse 15 of Matthew 24, it reads this way. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. This passage here, I believe, is futuristic in the sense that he's not talking about what happened in 70 A.D., but what's going to happen during the tribulation. Part of the reason why I believe that is because when uh, the temple was destroyed, it was just destroyed. This here is very specific and talks about the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place. And, and I'm going to have a small, like kind of a five-paragraph explanation of that that will be in the bulletin next week to help you to see the importance of those words. But there's an event that's going to take place, and the Holy of Holies is going to be desecrated because of this thing that's going to be standing in its place, which I believe is going to be kind of like an idol. Uh, I'm not sure as to exactly what it's going to be, but it's going to be something like that um, that's going to take place, and that's what it's talking about. So Daniel, as it says here, this is mentioned by Daniel. That's mentioned in Daniel chapter 12, verse 11, where he says, From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination, abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. So again, uh, what is mentioned here, what's talked about is, is, are these events that are going to be coming? And he wants Israel to understand, he wants the Jewish people to understand what's going to be happening to them, what's going to be taking place in the future when all this happens. Judgment is coming on the earth. Uh, when we talk about the tribulational period, I believe that it's important for us to remember the purpose of that. Uh, again, when we get into talking about the rapture, which is the main thing I want to get into, uh, that we want to keep in mind that the tribulational period is a couple of things. Number one, uh, it is judgment on the earth for sin. Uh, it's not the final judgment for, the, for individual believers, but it's God's judgment on the earth for sin. And also, I believe, it's going to be a time of purification of Israel, of unbelief. Uh, the Israel will be purified of unbelief, and we'll look at a few of those things in the future when we get there. Uh, but I believe that 
when the scripture says that all of Israel will be saved, I believe that's a true statement, that a time is coming when all of Israel will be saved, and, and that it be done primarily in two ways. One, there will be a mass conversion uh, to Christ, but also those who are non-believers, I, many of them will die, maybe all of them will, will die, because of what's going to be taking place. There's going to be a massive um, persecution, not only against believers, uh, those who become believers during the tribulation, but against those who are of Jewish descent, they're going to uh, face this. So the destruction, and then, and then this individual who brings all this about, this uh, individual, he himself is going to face destruction. Uh, so this is uh, no ordinary event in the course of human history. The idea is that all of this is in the hand of God. Primarily what we need to remember is that as events take place, there's no need for us to become, to kind of hyperventilate because of what's going to be taking place. We know that all of this is the things that God has decreed that's going to happen and that we are safe in his hands and we are to live according to what he says. And also remember that regardless of what happens even now, even when it comes to bad things that may happen to believers, the scripture talks about uh, you and I as believers, the great uh, idea is, is that, that we may suffer persecution and that we don't need to be afraid of that. Not that we're going to go through the tribulation, but we know that through the world today, there's a great deal of tribulation, a great deal of persecution that takes place in the lives of Christians. And so as a result of that, we are not to be deeply troubled by that. Not that we want that to happen, but we know that that might happen, and we're not to be afraid of that. We are to place our trust in God. And placing our trust in God does not always mean that we'll be delivered from that, though we may be, but we'll definitely be delivered while we're in that. And there are many believers today who, who we can read their testimonies and we can hear how they're facing persecution. And again, what, what is always astounding is that when we hear reports coming out of these countries where there's a great deal of persecution, the main thing that we hear, their number one request is that we pray for them. Their number one request is that we pray for them. And then when you look at their prayer requests, what they ask us to pray specifically, they ask us to pray that God would strengthen them, that they would uh, continue to behave as believers, that they would be able to uh, share the gospel of Christ with their tormentors, uh, that, that they would um, represent Christ well to the end. Everything that they ask us to pray for has nothing to do with them being delivered physically out of uh, the persecution that they're in, but that they will be delivered by God in their persecution by living correctly. And that at times can be difficult for us to grasp because we are very accustomed to living a life of peace and ease and wealth. And sometimes the, the thought of persecution greatly scares us. And, we, and some individuals think that somehow uh, that the only way that God can deliver us, the only deliverance that we will accept will be as if we're delivered physically from that. Uh, and when we, so we need to correct our thinking in that and realize that, again, that, that may not happen. And I'm not, you know, none of this is to scare people like, oh, tomorrow people are going to be arrested and tortured. I don't think it's going to happen tomorrow. I think many of us here probably won't experience any of that kind of persecution. But we know that it's a very real possibility. And the Bible continues to speak about that. The world is moving in a direction. And that's the main thing. The world is moving in a direction uh, where they continue to individually and collectively rebel against God. Man does not want God to rule over them in any way, shape, or form. And, we, and we, again, we see that in our country as it takes the shape of a moving away from 
the morals that are in the scripture, are moving away from the standards that the Bible has set up. So it's not just that they want to throw the Bible away, though they do, but our society for a long time has borrowed the morality of the scripture. And now they're seeking, which they've been doing for a long time now, moving away from that. The, the redefinition of what is marriage, uh, the redefinition of many different things um, is being done to move away from these moral absolutes. We want to, when I say we, the, the country, our, our culture, they want to establish what they believe is right or wrong. They want to establish what is sinful and what is not sinful and that kind of thing. So again, what we have here when you look at this prophecy that there's this, you know, Christ has come, Christ has been crucified, as the scripture says. Uh, he, was, he was cut off, he, he had put aside his glory, and now there's this big span of time that we are in the middle of, waiting for the 70th week, waiting for this time to come. And I believe that Daniel 9.27 tells us when it's going to take place. It's going to take place uh, when this treaty is signed. Whenever that's going to be, this individual is going to come along and sign this treaty. It's going to be seven years. It'll be easy to recognize. I don't think that we're going to see that ourselves, those of us who are believers. Uh, and again, we'll get to that starting next week. But again, the idea is, is that that's how uh, it's going to begin. And again, it's going to be a horrible time. And, and it's kind of like what we have going on in the world today, except as we say in some circles, it's kind of like doing that on steroids. So... When it comes to all that, remember last week I mentioned to you this idea that we sometimes as believers think that our lives are unimportant and they don't really matter. That in the large scheme of things, that when we kind of rush through all those things, that well, you know, these things may happen, but, but what can I do? I don't really have a place in any of this. It doesn't really matter what I do uh, because all these things are going to happen anyway. We sometimes will allow that to be used as an excuse. We sometimes allow that, that to be used as a way to maybe even be lazy. That because we're unimportant, because we're so small, uh, because we don't really have anything to offer, that it doesn't really matter. And we saw that uh, that is untrue. We looked at uh, the rod of Moses, and we looked how that became the rod of God, and how uh, what a difference that that made. And that in the end, when it comes to you and me, that we need to move from who we are, just thinking about who we are as individuals, and, and in a sense, we need to become the me of God. I want to be used by the Lord in this life. I want to be used by the Lord in the lives of others. That what we do does matter. It, it is significant. It is significant and important to God. It, it may not be important in the sense as we think on a worldwide scale, but very few people are, are ever that impactful. The point is, is that we want to be impactful in that arena that God has given us. And that's what I wanted to just spend a few moments looking at today. I mentioned before that I had read some things by Francis Schaeffer a long time ago uh, in a book he, called, he wrote called No Little People. And in there he talked a little bit about the individual who may think that they're insignificant. Uh, some of you may have heard the story. There is, there is a story of a, of a young man who was on the beach and all these sand dollars were being washed up on the beach. And, uh, of course, if they remained upon the beach, they would die. And so he was picking them up, and he was fervently throwing them back in the ocean. And this older gentleman was watching him uh, do this for the course of many, many minutes and went up to the little boy, and he says, Sonny, he says, I, I don't know why you're doing all of this. He goes, it just doesn't make any difference. You know, they're all going to die. And the little boy kept throwing the sand dollars back into the ocean. 
And uh, he said, son, didn't you hear me? He said, this is not going to make any difference. And the little boy stopped looking at him and says, but it makes a difference to this one. And then he threw it back in the ocean. <laughs> and the point is, is that, you know, we live in a culture where people continue to stress that individual lives matter. But our culture lives in a way that individual lives don't matter. That it doesn't make a difference. We, need to, we, we as Christians need to be those who live consistently with what the Word of God says. We believe that every single human being is created in the image of God. It's marred by sin, absolutely. But we believe every single person has been created in the image of God. Therefore, that alone means that person has great value and worth. And they are worth the effort. The world sometimes, certain cultures look at us as being a bit like we go overboard when it comes to the medical capabilities that we have and the links that we go through to save human life. Remember that that idea is based on the fact that we believe that human life is sacred. It's sacred because, again, we're made in the image of God. And we don't, we, we don't count the cost monetarily in that way. We believe that it's worth it. So not only are there no little people, what we also need to remember along with that is that there are no little places. The idea is that, that many of us have is that, well, I could be or I would rather be used by God in this place or in that place, but not in this place. We need to remember that the Christian life is not only being what God wants you to be, but it's being what he wants you to be where he wants you to be. In other words, some people have this idea, well, if I could just teach a larger Bible study or go to a larger school or have a, a bigger or better or more important job, if I could just have more power, then I could really make an impact for the Lord. There used to be that idea, uh, at least back in the 70s and 80s, and people still may have that idea now, that if only certain stars, certain celebrities, certain athletes, if, if they became believers, wow, what a great impact that would be. Well, not really. It doesn't have much of an impact at all. And so we, we think like the world in thinking that somehow if we as individuals, if I could just have this or have that, then I could really make a big impact for the Lord. And we're looking at it wrong. God never says that size and spiritual power go together. In fact, he tells us to, be, to, to deliberately be careful not to choose a place that's too big for us. Turn, if you would, to the book of Mark, chapter 10. We're going to look at two passages, uh, again, rather quickly. But I, I really want to stress uh, this, I guess you could say, in a corny way, um, because corny things are wonderful at times, and that is, is, you've probably seen this on bumper stickers, you don't really see it too much anymore because it's so corny, but it's like bloom where you're planted, uh, and that's really the idea, is that, remember that because of the sovereignty of God, who you are and where you live is not an accident, period. We have been placed, wherever we are, We've been placed where we are by God himself. God is not in heaven saying, oh, Tim Wade's in the wrong place. How did he get there? I don't want him there. I want him over here. That doesn't happen. That just doesn't happen with God. God is in charge of all these things, planning, planning these things and putting us where he wants us to be. And he expects us to live in obedience to wherever it is that we are. And, and what we need to stop doing is thinking that if, well, if I could be here, if I could be there, if I could do this, then I could really do these things for the Lord. And that's not how we are to think. 
In Mark 10, beginning in verse 42, it says, But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Every single Christian, without exception, is called to the place where Jesus stood. To the extent that we are called to leadership, whether someone is a pastor or an elder, a deacon, a Sunday school teacher, an Awana leader, the list can go on. Whatever it is that we, are, that we are called to do in whatever way that we are leading. And all of us, I think, to a degree, we're always leading someone. So we're all leaders in that sense. We're all called to ministry. And that's really the key when it comes to who we are as Christians. Even costly ministry. In other words, when you think of the word minister, minister, the word minister is not a title of power. It's a designation of servanthood. This doesn't mean that there's no such thing as church order, but what it does mean that the basic relationship between Christians is not pastor and the people. It's not the deacon and the people. It's not the Sunday school teacher and the people. It's brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what we're called to. That's, we are to be involved in ministry on that level. Turn if you were to the Gospel of John, chapter 13. The Gospel of John, chapter 13. As you turn there, let me just remind you that when Jesus Christ came, and as Jesus Christ lived his life as a servant, remember that if you kind of take a step back and look at the, the entire planet, the entire planet Earth, during the time that Jesus Christ was on Earth, we have this very tiny country that had been overwhelmed and overrun by the Romans. A country... Uh, as far as the world is concerned on a global scale, was as insignificant as it could be. And then the people who were running around living their lives in this insignificant country were under the power primarily of the Romans. On the scale of things, it didn't matter what anybody in Israel did then. It, it was not going to affect anything on the planet. As Jesus Christ lived his life... As Jesus Christ began to teach and preach, we know that there are many who are following him. If you, were to, if you count all those when you go through the book of Acts who were believers when he left, there's 500 people or so. 500 people on the entire planet whose lives were at that moment in time immediately affected by the life of Jesus Christ. That's not what you would call a great leader by any means. Imagine if that for some, uh, some reason all of a sudden there was this press conference and the president of our country comes out and says, well, I'm very, very concerned about uh, one of the great leaders of the world. And he tells us where he lives, and he says he's got a following. 500 people. I'm like, what? 500 people? It's, it's not enough people to have an army. 500 people. He, and, he, and if he was to go on, yeah, I'm very concerned. This man is, is going to have a great impact on the world. Because is he going somewhere else to be elected president? I mean, to us, it doesn't make any sense. There's no impact there. And when you think about it on a human level, Jesus Christ has 500 people. And yet we all know that the whole world was affected by the life of this one man. Yes, it's true that this, this life of this one man was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, 
God who had come in the flesh. And we understand that. At the same time, we shouldn't also diminish the idea that it was one singular life that was committed to the truth of God and his word and had affected the world. And we are, in that sense, I believe, expected by God. God desires to use us to affect the world. And the gospel of Christ, which began then in that small little country, has affected the world in profound ways, in, in ways that affect science and economics, uh, politics, as well as religion and the morals of the world and everything else that goes on. And so we need to make sure we don't forget that. And again, it's not that we are seeking to somehow, we're going to try to accomplish these great things for God, and, and, and we're looking at these great things as being those things that, that, that the world sees as great. It's, it's not that at all. We'll let, we'll let God take care of that part. We just need to be faithful. John 13, beginning of verse, th- verse 5, I mean, sorry, verse 3 through 5. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. And he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Then you drop down to verse 13. He says, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, and you, uh, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And I think the King James actually captures verse 17 much better uh, because I think sometimes the word blessed uh, We're not real clear as to what always that means because it sounds spiritual. But the King James says, If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. And so what what I wanted to emphasize this morning to us is this. Is that it is true to a degree that God is concerned about our happiness. Not that we're just happy-go-lucky and life is a party. Not in that sense. But truly happy in the sense that we are smiling and laughing and that we are enjoying life and that our life has a purpose and all those things. But here is the thing. He tells us here, and he shows us by example, he washes the, the feet of the disciples. We're all very familiar with that story where there was, you know, that was the common thing in those days in that culture because of the dusty roads and people wore sandals and when someone would come into your home, there would be an individual there, usually a servant if, if you had any kind of wealth, uh, even just a small bit of wealth. Uh, or you would have someone in your home designated to wash the feet of the individual who came in. It's a very humbling thing, but you would wash their feet. And so in this case, we have the one who's the teacher, the one who's the master, the one they all respected and loved and cared for. And he then takes off his outer garment, and in each disciple, he washes their feet. And he does so uh, to emphasize to them the importance of being a minister, of truly serving each other. Not looking for fanfare, not looking for any of those things. And so when he finishes that, and he begins to speak to them, again, after he tells them what we're very familiar with, which is a servant is not greater than his master, and we understand that, we we understand that phrase, then he says these two things in verse 17 that are vital. Number one, if you know these things. The idea is not that we know them intellectually. 
but that we have an understanding and we take this to heart. And as we take this to heart, it is revealed in the way that we live. One of the ways that we always can tell what someone believes, or maybe the way we can tell that what, what we believe, what we truly believe, is by the way that we live, by the way we talk, the way we think, the way we act. You know, have we, have, you know has that individual truly embraced the gospel of Christ? We even talk at times about individuals who may claim to be believers, and sometimes we may doubt a little bit in some cases because of the way they live. They don't really seem to be embodying what the gospel is and what it says. So here he tells us that if we know these things, but he doesn't leave it there. Because Christianity is, even though Christianity is a religion of knowing, Christianity has never been a religion only of knowing. It's always been a, a, a religion of knowing and doing. Again, not a religion of just doing. We're not trying to earn our way to heaven. We're not just trying to be uh, a group of individuals who do good work so the world will, will think well of us. But it's always a combination of these two things. It's always. And so he says then, that so when we look at this event that takes place, we we look at Christ washing the disciples' feet. Remember that at the moment that Christ was doing that, there was at the same time a group of men who were meeting who who were going to execute a plan to have Jesus arrested to make sure that he was going to be put to death. That was going on. There was a tension that was in the air that it could be felt. The, the disciples themselves felt it because of what was going on and the way that Jesus was talking. He, you know, he was talking about these kinds of things. And so, you know, when, when all this is going on, all this turmoil is in the world, here we have this room where everything is quiet and still. And the most important things are happening right there at that moment, at that time. And we have this solitary man who's washing the feet of his disciples. And then he says... If you know these things, and you do them, you'll be happy. So in the midst of all the trials and tribulations that, that we are facing in our world today, all of the, the political craziness and all of, really, the uncertainty that, that, that's out there, all of the predictions that are going on, you know, there are those who are saying that the stock market has to crash because it can't be this good. I'm not up on economics. I don't really know. It may crash. It may not. I don't know. All those who are still uncertain about what's going to happen with all the healthcare stuff. I don't know how it's going to work out. I know how I would like it to, but I'm certainly not smart enough to figure out how to make all that happen. But, you know, there'll be those who may find themselves without coverage or, you know, that, that's, that's a very real possibility. And then we see the escalation of violence that take, that's taking place within our within our own country, much less across the world. It's not just the threats of people sending missiles over and all those kinds of things. Again, we have a, a greater chance of being killed here, even in our little town. And then the uncertainties of, of suddenly being diagnosed with some disease, which we know that people among us have experienced, where all of a sudden someone is told, well, you, you know, you have cancer. There were no signs, and now there's signs, and you have cancer, or the cancer is greatly advanced. And we've gone through that kind of uncertainty. Or even the uncertainty that people felt yesterday morning at 8 a.m. when they got that wonderful text from the emergency broadcasting system in Hawaii that a missile had been launched and that this was not a test. In the midst of all of that, we really can have a very great sense of peace. We really can have a sense of calmness. We really can, at the same time, not only have that, but even be happy. 
And that is understanding who we are and where God has placed us. And God has said to you and me that he wants us to live in obedience to what he said where we are. Not where you're going to be next week, not where you're going to be next year, but where you are right now. And you are to do it in the same way that Jesus did it. We don't look for fanfare. We don't look for people to say how much they appreciate us, though that's always nice. We do so for him. In fact, if you read through the story, I don't know if this didn't happen because I would have to be speculating beyond what the scripture says, but I don't read a whole lot in there about these guys saying thank you to Jesus for what he did. We know that Peter said, no, 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 don't wash my feet. You know, and then Jesus said, you have to let me do this. And then Peter said, well, then you have to wash all of me because I'm filthy. And, you know, we understand all those things. But there's not a whole lot of men showing gratitude. And so we have Jesus Christ living by example. And so my, my encouragement to you this morning is this, is that we don't, we don't look to the world and we don't even, in a sense, look to each other for appreciation though we do want to appreciate each other, but we really do live our, our life for the audience of one. We need to be content with who we are in Christ. We can learn to be very content with who we are in Christ. We can learn to be very happy with who we are in Christ. And once we have that, once we grasp that, as we live in obedience, living that out by serving others, whether they appreciate it or not, we're going to be fine. We're going to be content. We won't be bitter. We won't be filled with iniquity. We won't be filled with great fear when we see the world going crazy. Hopefully we'll be the ones that they'll be able to turn to and say, how is it you can live this way in the midst of all this craziness? And then we can point to Christ and explain the gospel of Christ and let them understand the difference that he's made in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful Thank you, Lord, for what you've shared with us in your word concerning the future. Even though, Father, there's a great deal of it there that we don't really have a good handle on. We do understand some of the basics. But the most basic thing, Father, that we know is that all these things are in your hands. And that a great deal of it has not yet been fulfilled, and it's going to be fulfilled, but that we don't just sit idly by waiting for all this to happen. That, Lord, you've called us to live in a particular way, in a particular time, in a particular place. And that you've called us to live in obedience and love to you now in the place that we are. And we ask, Lord, that for each one who, who strives to live in obedience to what Jesus said here, I pray, Lord, that you would fill them with, that, with a great sense of happiness and contentment. I pray that you would help us, Father, to find our full satisfaction in Jesus Christ. That we'll not be caught up in all the craziness that's going on, but to recognize, Lord, the opportunities that we have to share the love of Christ with others. And so we pray, Lord, that you give to us a great sense of who you are and the truth of your word. That when we open your word and we read the words of Christ for ourselves, that, Father, we will have a sense of calmness because of what you said. 
And then, Lord, that with a great sense of purpose, because we're living in obedience to what you've said, as we meet people along the way, that we will be reminded over and over again that who we meet, wherever we are, is never by accident. It is by your design, as you desire to use us in their lives, and perhaps to use them in our lives. And we pray, Lord, that we'll be able to share these great experiences of happiness with each other, that we may be encouraged together. That we, Father, may, as individuals and collectively, may live for you. That, Father, indeed, the world, the individuals that we meet, may take notice. And they may have a strong hunger and desire for what we possess. Help us to be strong. Help us to remain strong. And help us, Father, to encourage each other to be strong. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.